I'm still marveling at the James Timken, Josh Mandel story, Seth Richardson's analysis that went up yesterday afternoon and is in the Plain Dealer today really drills it. And I, I'm stunned that our two candidates for U.S. Senate are fighting to get the approval of the guy who incited violence to overthrow the government of the United States. We need to point that out every time we talk about them because that's what they are. This week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer, I'm Chris Quinn here with Jane Cahoon, Chris Wernowski, and Laura Johnston. Jane, Seth's piece was terrific. Yes, it was. I wish I could take some credit for it but uh, <laughs> <laughs> as his editor, but he did a great job just nailing it on that. But I, I do get back to, they're not talking about issues. They're not talking about anything. They're fighting desperately to get approval from a guy who was literally trying to set up a dictatorship where, where elections don't matter, the government doesn't matter. I mean, they're running for a body that if Donald Trump could have gotten away with it, he would have dissolved. And, and that's frightening. I mean, they're supposed to be running to protect and swear an oath to the Constitution of the United States, but they want the approval of the guy that wanted to get rid of the Constitution. The United States. And, and his standard for granting an endorsement is, are you loyal to me? I mean, Not like, what could you do for our country? It's idolatry. I mean, is this just me or is, is, is everybody struck by this or are we just numb to it? Is everybody so numb to this now that we just accept it because we can't accept that. Well, it's been the problem all over the country. Now it's just kind of hit home. Every state now has a Matt Gates or a Joni Ernst or, a, you know, the sort of politician that is going to, you know, show fealty to one person and, and, and really kind of thumb their nose at the electorate. That is so not who we are. This whole country was founded in opposition to that. I got got some bad news. It's who we are now. (laughs) Very scary. All right, let's begin. Why did Ohio's official coronavirus death toll drop by hundreds Tuesday? Jane Cahoon, you and I were talking about this yesterday afternoon, and you put it beautifully. Go ahead, lay it out there. (laughs) Well, what did I say, Chris? I think I said because they couldn't do it right. In they couldn't the first do it place. competently. They're changing the way they count. <laughs> so they're changing it. Yes. And our, our death toll did not drop because fewer people died from this virus. It's because they've decided now, because as I said, they couldn't do it, the two-step process correctly. So they're employing this new, slower system to count the deaths. And this, uh, as we know, follows this massive blunder last month when they realized they had underreported more than 4,000 deaths because one poor person who was assigned to the task of reconciling a couple of databases got overwhelmed and way behind. So what they're going to do now is they're going to await these rulings from the Centers for Disease Control involving death certificate information that the state provides. And that's a process that routinely takes at least four weeks and, and sometimes months But they say it's going to be more accurate this way. But, you know, for us, it means that, well, at least temporarily, the number of deaths is going to drop. And then instead of this daily update that we usually get, they're going to be made twice a week as they uh, receive the data back from, from the CDC. So, for example, on Tuesday, after they made this announcement, the state reported a grand total of 16,750 deaths. And that was down from 17,346 on, on Monday. Um, that, that CDC check, it used to be the final step, as I said, in this two-part 
process where where they had been reporting deaths based on initial reports filed by hospitals and urgent care centers and health districts. And, and that was more timely, even though, you know, the deaths already lag in reporting. So now they're just going to lag, you know, even more. So they say this is the gold standard that they're going to be using. And the state's medical director, Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff, noted that other metrics are more reliable anyway to track the trends like hospitalizations and, and other case information. And as I said, the deaths were always, you know, a lagging indicator, but now more so. Yeah. I mean, everybody knew that they had to make adjustments, but it, but it seemed, instead of <laughs> instead of fixing what was broken, they're just giving up. So I guess they can lay off some people, right? Because they had people whose jobs it were to do the counting and they don't need them anymore. It's just bizarre. It's like, yeah, we can't make our abacus work. So we're going to let the federal government do it and be really late with the numbers instead of saying, let's let's get it together. Let's do this right. Let's serve the residents. The, the public health laws and the public health departments really have been unveiled in this pandemic to be grossly incompetent. I hope when this is over, we come back and review it because we're going to have another pandemic. And if we don't learn some lessons from this yeah. one, we're just going to repeat this again. It's just- I think even uh, Mike DeWine would agree with you, the governor. He, he's often said that public health in this country and in the state, you know, it's been neglected for years. So, as yeah. I said, he would agree with you. Although we still have a lot of people in the legislature that want to new- neutralize it even more and make it even worse. I mean, look at Texas. They took away the mask oh, requirement. Don't get me started. Don't get me started. Crazy. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. How might this year's Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction have the biggest crowd ever by far for a ceremony in Cleveland? Laura Johnston, this thing had been rumored for years and years, and it's finally going to happen. Yeah, we're going to move to the queue or the Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse instead of the public auditorium, and that allows it a lot more space. And this is going to happen on October 30th. We're nearly tripling the attendance availability. Of course, there's still a big question about capacity with the pandemic restrictions. Fieldhouse is currently approved for up to 25% of its normal capacity, so they could approach 20,000 people for a concert, plus or minus a few hundred people, depending on the stage setup, how many tables they have for VIPs. But, you know, that we're talking about October. And if Biden and Chris Quinn are right and we have everybody vaccinated by the end of May, maybe those numbers will grow and we'll be allowed to have a fuller arena. So this could be really big. And it, it means a lot because the list of nominees for the class of 2021 includes some really big names like Jay-Z, Tina Turner, the Foo Fighters, Iron Maiden. And there are potential for big name guests, air live on HBO and more eyes on a rock hall ceremony than have ever been before. Well, and they've sold out the Cleveland ceremony the last few times, leaving them to wonder, well, if it was sold out fast. Uh, how many more tickets could they sell? How much more money could they bring in? This is uh, an expensive proposition, but it also raises a lot of income. So it would be interesting. It's sad for Public Hall. Public Hall was where the Beatles played, and it's been the site of a whole lot of rock history, and, and it's always been there. But but it, that that is limited. There are limits to the space there, although it did give it a personality that I don't think you get in the arena. We'll have to see how it goes. I do well, suspect by October we'll get a lot more people in there. Go ahead. I agree. I think, I mean, this could be a whole weekend, right? I mean, there's nothing to say that we couldn't get creative and have some event in there that, you know, honors the history of rock. I feel like there's some opportunities here to get creative. Yeah, you're right. You're right. There's There are things that they could do. They could actually have 
small concerts in public hall or something leading up to it. We'll see. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How many concealed carry licenses for firearms did Ohio issue last year, and was it a big jump over 2019? Chris Ranowski, I'd like to understand the psychology of this one. I don't know that we can. It, it was a pretty big jump, to be honest. New concealed handgun licenses in Ohio jumped 78% in 2020 over the previous year, while renewed license reached their third highest annual total ever. The high number of new and renewed permits reflects just how tumultuous 2020 was with the pandemic, civil rights protests and riots, and a, and a very tumultuous uh, presidential election, among other things. Ohio sheriffs issued 96,892 new concealed carry license, the most since 2016, and the third most in the past decade. Uh, meanwhile, about 72,000 Ohio gun owners renewed their license in 2020. And that marked the second straight year uh, renewed licenses have decreased in Ohio in 2018 and 2019, were the top two years for renewed concealed firearm licenses since such permits were first issued in 2004. I think yeah, we, we spoke to uh, Dean Reich, I believe is how you pronounce it, from the uh, Buckeye Firearms Association. And he said the reason that so many Ohioans sought concealed carry permits last year was because of the high number of things that happened in 2020 that made them uneasy. I think there was a, a coronavirus panic. I think everybody, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic thought the coronavirus was going to be like a zombie apocalypse. You know, I remember there was about a month at the beginning where everybody was saying, what's your apocalypse skill going to be? And and what is this? And But I think it did scare a lot of people into into thinking that they might need guns. So and then you you add a layer of civil unrest that was taking place all over the country. I think that's probably the other main factor in the end of this. The 2016 being the previous high is interesting because that was another presidential election year. And I do know in the past when, when Obama was president, the NRA used that to say, oh, he wants to take your guns. Uh, and maybe that also creates anxiety. If there's a presidential switch, I better get my gun permit now because I won't be able to get one later. But that was a huge increase. It, it's odd with people working at home that they felt the need to have a concealed carry permit when they're, they're in home because you don't need a concealed carry permit that gun in your house. But it's a staggering number. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How did U.S. Senator Rob Portman become one of the very first people in the world to get the just-approved Johnson & Johnson coronavirus vaccine? And how did he get it four months ago? Jane Cahoon, this is actually a noble thing he did. He put himself on the line. It's a good news Rob Portman story for once. Right. He he had told us back in November that he was going to participate in this clinical trial, which was in his hometown at a research center in Cincinnati for this Johnson & Johnson vaccine because he, he thought it was important. So now that the vaccine's been officially approved for emergency use, he, he told us on Tuesday that he found out he actually got the real vaccine, not the placebo. And uh, he was more than he was one of more than 39,000 people who participated in this trial. But it's funny, he said he was convinced that he had gotten the placebo because he had no reaction at all, not even pain in his arm. So he just said, I'm really glad that all the data is now being used to show that it's safe and effective. It's a good vaccine. You know, a lot of people should get it. And I think you can count him among those who think it's a good idea to get this one, even though we've talked about skepticism involving this one and the efficacy and so forth. But 
you know, if it's uh, 85% effective at preventing severe disease and 100% effective at preventing hospitalization and death, you know, you could look at it as turning the coronavirus into something more, you know, like a mild flu or a common cold or something like that. I, I, I mean, I might be way off base on that. I have no medical degree here, yeah, obviously. I would, but I, to me, that's how I view it. Like if enough people get it, you know, and we don't have people seriously ill or going to the hospital or dying, that's great. Laura Johnston, Evan McDonald published a story yesterday explaining why you shouldn't compare it because people, of course, were, uh, you know, and it's public health officials talking, so you really can't trust them because they've lied to us repeatedly. But but what is the gist of what he found out? That the idea is that Johnson & Johnson was tested at a different time than Moderna and Pfizer. And so the variants were included in the testing while the Pfizer and Moderna were approved before those came up. And so you're looking at an efficacy rate of like 95% for those first two versus 66 is the number keeps getting tossed around for Johnson and Johnson, but experts say, you know, it's, it's, you know, an apple and oranges comparison. And besides Johnson and Johnson, one is here, it's available. It's one shot. It's easier to get to people. You don't have to keep it at those negative temperatures. And so like, don't be afraid of getting it. Just go and get it. But you can compare them, right? So, so if I get the <laughs> Pfizer vaccine, I'm unlikely to get sick at all. If I get the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, I'm not going to get really sick and die, which is pretty much the goal, right? I don't think anybody cares if they get a head cold or, or minor symptoms. They don't want to get the long haul symptoms. They don't want to die. But there is a difference. And to say, don't compare them, you know, throw on the flag. Yes, compare them. You can compare them as much as you want. I don't think you get to choose, right, Chris Wernowski? I mean, you go to your appointment, they're going to give you what they got. But, but you know, I, we have heard people who get the Moderna vaccine seem to have more intense reactions. Jane Coon, I think you had the Pfizer, right? And you didn't have any reaction. Correct. Yeah. First one, anyway. Yeah, and my son had the Moderna, and he got he, he's younger, and he got sick as a dog for 36 hours, but he's not going to get the coronavirus. I just, the idea of public health officials saying, don't compare them, it's apples and oranges. No, it's pretty much apples and apples. I'm not buying. I guess we don't get a top shelf versus rail option for other vaccines <laughs> <laughs> when we go to the doctor, right? So, I mean, why does this get to be any different? Yeah, that's true. I mean, the thing is, we keep talking about boosters and the fact that this is not a one-time deal. We are all, we are going to have to get more vaccines. So maybe if you get the Johnson Johnson one now, you'll be in line for the better one later. I don't I don't know, but I feel or, like we're, you know people who got Moderna anyway. and Pfizer might have to get a booster too right, exactly. because of these because variants. Of variants. So, Chris, I, I think you should not. pick up your flag. I, no, I I this is a conversation we should have. You should talk about. If you get either or, what are the differences? You should know going in so that if you start to get sick after you get the Johnson & Johnson, you know, you don't have to have a five alarm fire because it's like, yes, you can get sick, but you're not going to get so sick that you die. Right? And, and we should talk about where it's going, right? That's Johnson & Johnson, because it doesn't require the same kind of deep freeze, they were saying it might be easier to get it to hard to reach places, more rural areas. And so, I mean, you don't want to give a whole class of people like, geographically a lesser vaccine like it's one thing that's luck of the draw it's another if like some populations are getting a worse vaccine and so i think it's worth talking about however 
since it's still so scarce, like if you want to give me Johnson and Johnson, I will take it. Me, Thank you. Me too. I just I, I I bristle when I see things like you can't compare that. I mean, the public health officials were the ones that told you don't wear a mask, it won't protect you. Then they said wear a mask, it won't protect you, it'll protect those around you. And then they said wear a mask, it'll protect you. I, I don't trust anything they say. And but then they said wear two masks. Wear two masks. And but <laughs> but wear two masks for the filtration when it's really about where it's so. The, the, the thing is, I, I'm with you, Laura. The, the first one I'm offered, I'll get. But I would like to understand what the differences are of things that are being injected into my body. And that's why it's worth talking about, despite what public health officials would have you believe. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What are the new and relaxed coronavirus restrictions for sports venues, entertainment centers, theaters, and banquet centers? Laura Johnston, as we start to get more and more people vaccinated, it seems like things are loosening up a little bit. Yeah. So this is the official order that came out uh, yesterday based on the Thursday announcement from Mike DeWine that we're going to be able to begin opening up those indoor sports venues, theaters and other entertainment centers as long as the spectators stays under 25 percent of capacity and high efficiency air filters are put into place. So outdoor venues get a little bit more. They're up to 30% capacity. You still have to wear your mask unless you're eating or drinking. You have to maintain social distancing between unrelated parties. We're talking about like selling pods of tickets to these kind of things. But it does mean that schools can start planning their proms and graduations. County fairs can happen, not just the junior fairs we had last year. And and we can really start making plans for the future. Also, the 300-person limit for banquet centers hosting events like wedding receptions has been lifted that's been in place since June. However, I think this is interesting. The other limits on wedding receptions remain in place, including no dancing, no mingling. You got to sit at your table. Yeah, I imagine that'll get lifted in the not distant future either. The the question I have about this is, can a place like Playhouse Square be profitable if they can only sell 25% of their seats? And my bet is no. I bet my bet is that they can't be because I don't believe their margins are that high. So that this seems like it would still be a limit on things like Playhouse Square and live action theaters. I agree. And they aren't planning to open, you know, they're at least they've said till the fall. So I'm sure they're hoping that this is lifted a whole lot more before the fall. But it does give a little bit of hope to things that can happen. And, you know, things like the Indians are already planning for it. And I, I think, I mean, the story has been really popular on our site since we posted. So everybody just wants to read, like, what are we allowed to do now? Like, this is good news. Go ahead, Chris Warnowski. It was interesting. Last night, after a few hours after the announcement about the state of Texas and Mississippi basically reopening completely, DeWine's name started to trend on Twitter. And I was curious because I hadn't heard any news about DeWine. And of course, you click on it and, and it's it's people saying, time for Ohio to reopen. I hope DeWine takes Texas's uh, example and, and decides to reopen. And so it'll be interesting to see how he responds to that request because he's, you know, from a political perspective, he has people like Josh Mandel beating him up on this issue. And and so I, I think that it's – I don't know that he'll cave to the pressure, but he's going to feel it. For some, this is great news, but I just feel like for, for other people, it's it's not going to be enough. Well, let me ask you this, though. I, we've all been – it's been impressed upon all of us the value of wearing masks even after you're vaccinated that for probably another year – if you're in a crowd of people, the, 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 for your health, for everybody's health, it's a good idea to wear a mask because even though you're vaccinated, you can still be a carrier and things. So, I, you know, most people I know, I think, 
if they go to the grocery store and go to places like that, they're going to wear a mask, maybe not with family members. Do you need the mandatory requirement to do it? Or, or at this point, do you just rely on people to take safety measures on their own? Well, it's not just the mask stuff, though. It's it's lifting all of the restrictions on restaurants and, and indoor venues, which I think is, you know, I think people's attitudes about masks are pretty well codified by this point. You know, I I, I don't know a lot of public pleading that's going to make an anti-mask person wear one a, a whole year into this this process. But but there are things that they can do. They can put caps on how many people can gather indoors and all that stuff. And, yeah, that's true. And and. And and so I think that's the bigger issue because that was my initial thought. It's just like, well, people are people are pretty much doing now what they're they're going to be doing. But but we but we've shown that any good news is met with the desire to be wildly irresponsible. And, <laughs> and so and and so I get it. It's 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 that we're getting that adrenaline of being able to see the finish line. But then you know, do we want to trip over our own feet on our way there? And and so I I just. I worry, I worry that, you know, with all of this politics that's wrapped up in this, that, that that's going to get in the way of the, the medical progress that we're making. Good point. Well, we'll have to see what DeWine does. You're right. Because, you know, as Josh Mandel said, he's squishy. You're listening <laughs> to this week in the CLE. What are Cleveland City and Cleveland schools officials hoping will happen with a bunch of school properties, some quite historic, that they have put on the sales block? Chris Renesky, I don't know how many uses there are for an old school building other than as schools or charter schools, but boy, they are trying to sell a lot of them. I tell you, actually, one of my favorite apartments was in an old school building. <laughs> Not here, but it's a uh... It's one of the potential uses that that uh, 19 different school properties, former school sites here are basically the city saying the city schools are saying, give us your ideas and we'll think about maybe selling them to you. The sites are mostly on the east side and they include 12 former school buildings and seven vacant lots. The Cleveland Metropolitan School District owns the land, which comprises more than uh, 61 acres of property, uh, almost a million square feet of building space in all. The developers are allowed to submit their materials by April 30th, and then the city plans to notify them if they are selected by May 31st. So of the 12 buildings, the city and, and the school district are marketing, six were considered landmarks, which actually might make people less likely to buy them because there's a lot of restrictions of what you can do with them and you have to get approvals. But but some of the buildings date back more than a century, the oldest being the Wilson Middle School on East 55th Street between uh, Payne and Superior Avenues. It's, it dates back to 1903 and closed in 2005. But there's a whole list of, of different schools and, and properties that, that Eric Heisen put in his report on this. And, 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 and with, with these properties, the Cleveland Landmarks Commission must sign off on any plans involving six of these buildings that are considered landmarks. So you said you lived in one that was your favorite. I, I've been in a couple of these conversions, and I always got the feeling like this is never going to feel like anything else but a school. And when you're walking down a school hallway, it doesn't matter what you do with it. It feels like a school hallway. How did the one you live in uh, defeat that? Well, my rent was three hundred dollars a month. <laughs> so step one, it was really cheap. No, it was beautiful. I mean, it was like a it was clearly like an old classroom, had giant windows, so I got a ton of sunlight. I mean, these were, you know, these were old, really beautifully designed architecture buildings. So you walk in, 
under like a big stone arch, you have these big dramatic staircases. It was great. Wow. And, and, you know, I mean, I was in my twenties and, you know, I mean, it was a loft apartment. I mean, it was a, basically a studio with a big loft upstairs, like one I could walk around in. I mean, that's how high the ceilings were. It was wildly inefficient. It was, you know, it was, you know, I mean, the appliances were older, but it's, you know, it's the kind of place you live in when you're a entry level journalist <laughs> in a city you've never lived in. Okay. Um, but they're, I mean, but it's, you know, I mean, we have, we already have schools here that are converted into apartments and they, they seem to be pretty popular. Yeah. But th- those are some of the ones I'm talking about. I feel like I'm, I'm in a school building. I'm not sure I want to live in a place that feels like a school building. I was, I, mean, I, I guess there's a difference. Laura Johnson's going to feel differently because I guarantee you she loved school. And I pretty I much hated school. <laughs> I, I, I wanted to be done with school the minute I started with it. And so maybe that, that colors my uh, reaction to it. Laura, I was just going to say that COSI, the museum in Columbus, is an old, I think, high school um, that they turned into a museum. And it has really wide hallways and um, works out pretty well. So, I mean, you, you don't have to think just like places to live. You can think more creatively. Yeah, that's true. Place. That's true. Okay, you're listening this week in the CLE. What has been going on with the suddenly famous vaccine queens since our columnist Layla Tassi introduced them to our audience last week? Laura Johnston, they have had a rocket to the moon kind of fame, but they also have had an interesting inquiry from the governor's office that they're ambivalent about. Yeah, I love this story so much. And I salute these women, Marla Zwingy and Stacey Benet, who have helped more than 700 Ohioans find vaccine. This story went viral, not with just us. They went on TV. They've been on the Today Show. A transportation company reached out to them with an offer to drive homebound seniors to their appointments. A major insurance company asked them about setting up a formal call center to help Ohioans. They did a Facebook Live webinar to teach people their tips and tricks. And so they did. They got they got a call from Mike, De- or I think a call from his office asking that Mike DeWine wanted to reach out for them. And they said they felt really flattered. But they also felt like we're doing the work that your centralized vaccine (laughs) system should be doing and is not up and running yet. And who knows when we'll be up and running. So they're they're very, very thankful to hear from the government. But they they more want to turn this into like a learning experience. They say we can help the state create this uh, centralized registry. We know what will help, what makes it efficient and user-friendly. I guess some pharmacy system, and I I did a couple of these trying to help my dad, they require you to set up an account with loads of personal information to fill out a multi-page medical form before you can do anything else. That's really going to turn people off. And so they have these tips and tricks. Um, They just wish the state would handle it instead of some volunteer moms that are doing it out of the goodness of their heart. Yeah, they're only heroes because the state screwed this up so badly. So for the state to say, hey, great job, it's it's kind of insulting because they shouldn't have to do this job because it was Mike DeWine's job to do it. Anyway, Leila Tassi wrote an update to her column, published it yesterday. It's good stuff. Look it up on Cleveland.com. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. You know, I saw something yesterday that's making me feel like ancient and old. It said that people in their teen and 20 years are referring to the 1990s now as the late 1900s. Oh, God. I I still want to figure out what makes side parts and skinny jeans bad things, okay? That's what I want to know. Yeah, I just, the late 1900s. Wow, that's that's a big one. Okay. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. We will be back tomorrow with another discussion of the news. 